Chapter 61 The Ranks Asaf In the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful. This chapter, as well as chapters 57, The Iron, and 59, The Gathering, all begin with the same verse, discusses topics pertaining to military matters. This chapter defines an orderly row or rank of people, saf, that stands alongside each other in a military formation, making the impression of order, harmony, continuity, and unity among the soldiers. The word saf, or rank, has been taken from this chapter's fourth verse. Whatsoever is in the heavens and on earth, due to its inescapable adherence to general natural laws, glorifies God, and He is the mighty, the wise. Glorification, tasbih, is an orderly and purposeful action. Each of the countless parts of the world is designed to fulfill a specific purpose. And so, harming the ecosystem by arbitrarily removing an insect, a worm, or any creature we may deem insignificant will cause a problem in the world's order. Thus, everything is moving and acting to achieve the main goal based on divine wisdom. This is tasbih. And he is the mighty, the wise. Mighty means high and exalted, one who is powerful and invincible. Power usually corrupts, and since most powerful people have been unreasonable and dictatorial, God's might is characterized here as being wise, meaning his actions are based on reason. This chapter's introductory verse shows that the world and all of its inhabitants are subservient to a single purpose, as willed by God, and humans have to align themselves with this order too. In the symphony of the universe, everyone's instrument should be in tune with the others because all are playing from the same musical work. This is the true meaning of tasbih. After this prologue, the chapter asks rhetorically, O you who believe, why do you say that which you do not do? O you who believe is repeated three times in this chapter to show that it is a serious admonition to the faithful and despite its few words, the meaning is profound. We say many words and promise many things during the day and yet do the exact opposite. However, the context here has to do with war and defense and is not general in nature. It is most hateful to God that you say that which you do not do. In the sight of God, such inconsistency is a very serious offense and is abominable. As this is a general admonition and God is far beyond all human emotions, this is nothing more than a metaphor to inform us that God is pleased when we align our existential structure with His will and that failing to do so displeases Him. 
The rest of the verses reveal that the purpose of this prologue is self-defense, fighting, and jihad. The Quran says that people claim to be believers, but when hardship falls on them, the truthful can be distinguished from those who made false claims. This is because claiming to be a believer is easy. However, people can only prove that they are Muslims by unifying their words, actions, and faith. Now let us turn to this chapter's specific issue. Surely, God loves those who fight for His sake in solid ranks, as if they were one concrete structure. These people fight in ranks as an army, as one body, and one organism, thereby displaying their unity, integration, and solidarity. It is as if they were all one person, cut from the same cloth, from the same roots. Muslims involved in a war must know that they are part of a whole, that they can neither flee the battlefield nor seek to avoid the weapons hurled at them so that their friends will be killed. Being one soul in several bodies, they have become a single structure and as cohesive as a dam. God wants the battles fought for him to be like this. The next verse presents a historical example to inform people that some self-professed believers in the past were unwilling to defend their spouse, children, home, faith, and values, a reality that has existed throughout history. And remember when Moses asked his people, Why do you harm me when you know I am God's messenger to you? When they went astray, God caused their hearts to stray. God does not guide those who are rebellious. Moses' own people harassed and defamed him incessantly. When these people deviated and began following the wrong path and committing injustice, God swerved their hearts from the truth, casting darkness upon them. This is the Quran's way of saying that their continued disobedience sealed their fate and brought about this consequence. Just as consuming unhealthy food leads to obesity and other health problems, acting unjustly toward others will naturally cause our hearts and souls to gradually deviate from the straight path to become ever more impure. God does not guide those who are rebellious. Rebellious here refers to defying and disobeying the Sharia. Its lexical meaning is to tear a protective skin or sheath. For example, tearing the skin of a fruit enables microbes to enter and corrupt it. In the same vein, by ignoring the boundaries and limits that God has established between right and wrong, we are tearing our own protective sheath and bringing about our own corruption. In other words, our own rebelliousness causes us to be misguided. Another example comes from Jesus. And remember Jesus, the son of Mary, said, O children of Israel, I am God's messenger to you, confirming the truth of the Torah revealed before me, 
and giving good news of a messenger to come after me. His name will be Ahmad. Yet when he came to them with clear signs, they said, This is obvious sorcery. Jesus, an Israelite, was sent to the same people that Moses had come to guide in order to complete the latter's mission. As such, his message was meant exclusively for the descendants of Jacob, known as the children of Israel, who bred and raised great prophets. Confirming the truth of the Torah revealed before me, here Jesus is saying that he was not sent to tell his people to disregard the Torah or to tell them new things or to establish a new school or religion, but only to confirm and strengthen the existing Torah. And giving good news of a messenger to come after me, his name will be Ahmad. Clearly, on the one hand, Jesus confirms what came before him, and on the other hand, he gives the good news of someone who will succeed him. This statement has given rise to a long-standing theological dispute. On one hand, many believe that unlike Muhammad, who presented his community with the complete Quran before his death, Jesus was unable to do this for the New Testament. The same held true for his disciples. As such, one cannot vouch for their authenticity, as many things were either added or omitted, including the tidings about the Prophet. On the other hand, Muslims maintain that the original word used in Aramaic expressly mentions Ahmed, one who is the worthiest of all and has the greatest amount of merit. In any case, what is important here is the reference to a future messenger. In my opinion, the word itself is not the issue. When he says, someone called Ahmad will come, he means that this person's nature, character, and personality is Ahmad. That means praiseworthy, meritorious, and a person of exceptional character. This was stated in the Quran when God has said of the Prophet, Surely you are of a mighty and exalted character. Chapter 68, verse 4 Yet when he came to them with clear signs, they said, This is obvious sorcery. It says that when Muhammad brought them some truths, they declared that he had made them up. And who is more unjust than the one who invents lies against God when invited to submit to him? God does not guide those who are unjust. The rest of the verses concern exaggerations of personality and character. Many Christians assert that Jesus is the Son of God and that you will be saved if you truly love him in your heart. They have also invented the Trinity. The Quran considers such statements unjust and untruthful. For God, as the Creator, is far above all such imagined associations. It is truly unjust to associate such things with God while calling people to Him. 
God does not guide those who spread falsehoods and man-made philosophies. For such people are unjust. They want to extinguish the light of God with their mouths, but God will perfect His light even though the disbelievers hate it. This is an easily understood metaphor. How could humanity extinguish the sun's light just by blowing on it? They think they can extinguish spirituality or the pure light of divine truth despite his promise to perfect it. The word disbelievers denotes no particular people, for it means people who conceal the truth and what is just. Those who do not want to understand the truth of the Quran and Islam mock, defame, and revile God, the Quran, and the Prophet in their useless attempt to blow out the light of truth. All such efforts are doomed to fail. It is he who sent his messenger with guidance and the religion of truth to show that it is above all false religions, even though the idolaters hate it. Does this mean that God sent Islam and the Prophet's Sharia to fight, defeat, and then destroy Jews and Christians? Of course not. The Quran is replete with verses that counter such a view and calls upon Muslims to live in peace with them. Furthermore, the Quran has expressly stated that it confirms the original Torah and the Bible sixteen times. The Quran speaks of only one religion, the same religion he has established for you, the tree, namely Islam, in the sense of being the original religion of submission to God instead of the historical Islam brought to humanity by Muhammad, has branches that were given to Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and all other prophets sent by God. The Islam brought by Muhammad is its final branch. There is only one religion, and thus all people should submit to it, for only it contains the actual truth and is perfectly just, instead of persisting in selfishness, bigotry, and group prejudice. O oh, you who believe, shall I guide you to a transaction that will save you from a painful torment? This is the third intra-group admonition. The word trade appears many times in the Quran because the Meccans were traders and business people. As their dry land had little, if any, the main profession was trade. Everyone sought trade and profit, so the Quran asked if they would like to be guided to a trade that would save them, that would never cause them an affliction or loss. What is that trade? Believe in God and His Messenger, and struggle in God's cause with your possessions and your persons. That is better for you, if only you knew. And struggle in God's cause means in the path of that which is right, means defending your life and position. Those among you who are like-minded and the Muslim communities with your property and lives. Struggle, jihad, 
does not mean fighting and war, but also means to strive, try, endure difficulties as well as shortcomings, to spend of your property and risk your life if necessary. You may be afraid of getting killed, but if you do nothing, far more people will die. When a society is organized and uniform, and therefore capable of defending itself, some of its members will be called upon to die in order to save their society. Imagine if our body had no white blood cells. We would be wide open to infection because those cells save our body by dying. The body will replace them, just as society will replace its dead members. The Quran says that those who have knowledge understand that it is in their own self-interest to undertake jihad. He will forgive your sins, admit you into gardens graced with flowing streams, into pleasant dwellings in the gardens of eternity. That is the supreme triumph. In return, your sins will be forgiven. Sins, here, mean the marks and consequences of wrongs that have been committed. The wrongs that we do are not obliterated, for their results and consequences will continue to follow us wherever we go. Only jihad will neutralize these consequences. Of course, this is phrased in a way that anyone, regardless of time and place, can understand. And he will give you something else that will really please you. Help from God and an imminent victory. So, O Prophet, give the faithful the good news. Because people may think these are empty promises, the Quran says that you will love it, for you are actively seeking it, namely, help from God and an imminent victory. The Prophet is told to convey the good news to the believers even though they may not only disbelieve in paradise but even doubt the existence of an afterlife. But they will assuredly see the effects of that for which they hope, victory in war, if they believe in God and His Messenger and strive in His cause. O you who believe, be God's helpers. As Jesus, son of Mary, asked the apostles, Who will be my helpers in the cause of God? They replied, We shall be God's helpers. A faction from the children of Israel believed, and a faction disbelieved. We supported the believers against their enemy, and they were the ones who prevailed. The last verse which has a positive and encouraging tone, discusses how Jesus asked his apostles, Who will be my helpers in the cause of God? Of course, God does not need our help and support. What is actually meant here is that if you help and support each other, you will save your society and, therefore, yourselves. There is a very interesting point here to note. Those who said that they would help Jesus did not say, we are your supporters, but that we are God's supporters. This very precise and calculated response shows how faithful they were to monotheism. In the end, 
some people supported him and others did not. How did they manage to survive this difficult period, which spanned several centuries and then finally see the dawn of victory? Jesus arose when Caesar ruled and Rome was a superpower. At that time, his followers would be thrown to the lions and fed to savage beasts. Their only sin was believing in God, believing that He was mighty, praiseworthy, and sovereign. Refusing to submit to anyone but God, they were judged guilty of not believing in the Roman Caesar. The Quran says that God helped them and that His help was not only given for one or two days. In the end, the Roman Empire, that superpower and powerful system that gloried in its gladiators and soldiers, was annihilated. Both its eastern, Byzantium, and western, the Rome of the Popes, halves, were cast into the dustbin of history, and the followers of Jesus were ultimately victorious, for they control large parts of the world, both politically and spiritually, ever since.